Oh, good morning, everybody. <laughs> wow. That's all I can say about the hymns, the songs we just sang. Is, wow. Um, there's three or four sermons right in there. I don't know if I can do justice now to uh, what we've just been singing, but I'm going to try my best. Well, today's sermon is brought to you by the number four. The number four in that I've broken down my message into four parts. Um, some of them will be parallel to the study guide if you have one of those and you've been following along. Some of them will be a little bit different. Uh, sometimes God leads us individually in different directions as we prepare for, for messages and for sermons. And uh, some of that is incorporated into this, this morning. But the first uh, section I've entitled, What's Your Identity? Or what do you, indi- uh, what do you identify yourself with or as? And secondly, a new covenant and our adoption into that, into that covenant. Thirdly, being an heir of God and your new name. And fourthly, and this one was the most difficult for me, what, difference, what, differ, what differentiates citizenship in heaven with citizenship on earth? It wasn't just difficult for me to say, but it was difficult for me to prepare as well. Anyone who's been following along in the, uh, the study guides We'll know that as Phil uh, pointed out in part of the opening this morning, there are um, verses that are individual to each and every chapter. And this one's no different. And I want to repeat the uh, verse, and I want to include a couple of verses before and after it. But the key verse is John 1, verse 12. But I'm going to start at uh, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Well, what's your identity? What do you identify yourself with? What do you identify yourself as? Who do you identify yourself There are so many ways today in our world that people can identify themselves. There's occupations. I'm a carpenter. There's family. I'm a father, a son, a husband. There's a surname. Now, here's one I've tried to do some genealogy with. My last name, Melnick. I've tried every way I can to associate myself with Eugene Melnick, who owns the Ottawa Senators, but it never quite works. Maybe it's because he spells his name differently. People associate themselves with their favorite sports team. This summer, I became a Toronto Blue Jays fan, like thousands of other Canadians. There you go. People associate themselves with hobbies, political identities, religious affiliation. Well, those are just some of the ways that people identify themselves in the world. And while there's nothing wrong with that, this morning... I want to talk about a different identity. I want to talk about your citizenship, my citizenship, not what our nationality is. This morning I want to talk about our spiritual citizenship, our spiritual identity. When it comes to your and my spiritual citizenship, there is only one of two choices. Either you're a citizen of heaven or you're a citizen of the world. Either you're a child of God or you're a slave to Satan. 
But how do people who are not a child of God wind up being a slave to Satan? That's pointed out in John chapter 8, verse 34, where it's stated, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Satan in his discourse with Eve convinced her and Adam to sin. And ever since then, people have been falling for his lies throughout world's history. The interesting thing about the either-or citizenship I'm talking about this morning is that it is either-or. Unlike a nationality where you can have both a Canadian passport, if you qualify, a British passport or French passport, you cannot have dual citizenship. It's either-or. Either you're a citizen of heaven or you're a citizen of the world. Though people try to have one foot in heaven... And one foot in the world, it's a lot like what happened to me as a young lad when I discovered what happens when you try and put one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat that is no longer tied to the dock. (laughs) Your legs can only stretch so far and eventually gravity takes over. In the spiritual sense, we cannot have dual citizenship. When the rich young man encountered Christ, Christ taught him, that you cannot love two masters. You will end up loving one and hating the other. You will serve one and you will hate the other. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it states, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I want to be perfectly clear this morning at the risk of repeating myself from time to time. It's okay to enjoy the things of this world, the pleasures, the activities, as long as, as long as, They don't take precedent over God's will for your life. Here's a quick and easy test to know if you're a citizen of heaven or a citizen of earth. You see, a citizen of heaven strives to seek out and carry out God's will for your life. A citizen of the earth seeks and desires to carry out my will for my life. That's the huge difference. The love of the world that John spoke of when he said, do not love the world and anything in the world. Sometimes it loses a little bit of translation from the original language into uh, English because we have so many different uses for the word love. What John was talking about is loving the world to the extent that you put the world before God. You see, I love things. I love all things aviation. I mean, when I'm outside doing something, I hear an airplane, I'll stop what I'm doing and look up to watch it. I could be watching in a movie, and it could be the worst acting in that movie, but if there's an airplane in it, then that movie's worth watching. <laughs> and that's okay. Maybe my wife wouldn't think so, but that's okay, because there's nothing wrong with having my love for aviation, as long as it doesn't take precedent over God. The same holds true for my wife, whom I love deeply. As much as I love Carol... My love for God runs deeper. And her love for God runs deeper than her love for me. To someone who's a citizen of the earth, that's a strange concept. 
they can't grasp their mind around that. And it makes no sense. But to a Christian, or a child of God, it makes perfect sense to the extent that when you put God above everybody else, God's love teaches you how to love others more deeply and more healthy than the world ever can. Also, John listed the things in the world that differentiate between desiring God and desiring the world. John said, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. See, the world itself is not sinful. God created the world, and when he finished, he looked down and he said, It is good. But it's what mankind does with the world that has made it sinful. In order, to, in order to identify ourselves as children of God and a citizen of heaven, we need an intervention because God is a righteous God and he can't even look at sin, let alone let sin enter his kingdom of heaven. That intervention came in the form of a new covenant and the intervener in the form of Jesus Christ. I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 30, 31 to 34. And this speaks of that new covenant. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. And they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's important to note a few things about this new covenant that Jeremiah was prophesying about. Number one, the new covenant that was being foretold was to be between God and the nation of Israel. Even though the Israelites rejected God's original covenant that came as part of the Mosaic law, God in his love was giving his chosen people a second chance. That second chance came in the form of his son, who came to the earth in human form, not to abolish the law that Moses had brought in, but to fulfill it and usher in this new covenant of salvation by grace as we know it today. When Jesus started his ministry here on earth, he preached and offered forgiveness of sin through repentance and acceptance of God's grace to the Jewish nation. God's plan of salvation was not meant to exclude us Gentiles because he didn't care about us, not at all. On the contrary, God loves us, as is stated in John 3.16. But God wanted to offer the nation of Israel, his children, the opportunity to first enjoy the blessings of his new covenant. Paul, in chapters 9 to 11 in the book of Romans, went to great length expressing God's love for the nation of Israel. And this really struck home when I read it. As many times, sometimes as you read a verse in the Bible, you glance over it. But this one hit me with a sledgehammer. Romans 11:9. Paul stated that salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Interesting. God brought salvation to us to make his 
naturally chosen people envious. That doesn't mean God loved us any less. That doesn't mean he loves his children, Israel, any more. But in a sense, God is using us as instruments to try and wake up his people, Israel, and bring them back to him. Paul also goes on to describe us Gentiles as branches being grafted into the olive tree. You see, we are not the natural part of the tree that is the nation of Israel. We're that wild branch out there. But God and his love have grafted us into the olive tree. And we too are allowed to take up the nourishment from the root that is God. In other words, we enjoy the same blessings as the Jews who believed and accepted Jesus, not because we were first in line or because we even deserved it, but because God chose us to be instruments. Peter, in the book of Acts, when he was up on the rooftop praying, and he got a little hungry, I think, and got a little distracted, so God put him into a trance, and he had a vision. And that vision was the sheet coming down from heaven, supported by all four corners. And on that sheet was all kinds of what would have been unclean animals to the Israelites, Animals that in the Mosaic law they were forbidden to eat. And God spoke to Peter and he said, kill and eat. And Peter said, no Lord, my lips will never touch anything unclean. And God said, kill and eat. And he, over and over, God gave him that message. And eventually Peter came to realize that message meant, go to the Gentiles and preach to them the gospel you've been preaching to the Jewish nation. And we've been the recipients of that ever since. Again, it may not be the only reason that God offered us salvation to make the Israelites Israelites jealous, but that may explain some of his timing. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Secondly, in this new covenant, the new covenant has not yet reached completion. The proof of that is in the prophecy that Jeremiah made. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That hasn't happened yet. That's still to come in the future tense. But someday it will. Will that be the trigger for the rapture? I don't know. We can't know that for sure. But it is still to come in the future. What I do want to emphasize this morning is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we enjoy the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, which is the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's a big one, because the Holy Spirit had interaction with people before, but now he's dwelling within us Christians. Well, what result does this new covenant have on our future? When you believe in Jesus Christ, and as Bill pointed out this morning, it's not just believing in his existence. I mean, even Satan believes in his existence. It's not just believing intellectually. But when the Bible puts believe and Jesus together, it means that you believe to the extent that you give your life over to Christ, that you give your heart over to Christ, that you are sorry for what you did to put you at odds with God, 
And you want to make that right. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but you want to make it right. That's what the word believe means when it's put right beside Jesus' name. And uh, wonderful things happen. You go from being a slave to sin to becoming an heir of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, God adopts you into his family. Now remember, we Gentiles are not God's chosen people. That honor and responsibility has fallen on the Israelites. But just because we're not God's chosen people does not mean that God did not choose us. And that's why adoption is such a beautiful thing. Here on earth, if a child is adopted into a loving family, that child takes on all of the benefits of being a natural child to that family. A loving family doesn't all of a sudden continue to distinguish, you're just the adopted child, this is my naturally born child. No, those children are merged together and they have the same blessings, the same responsibilities and the same love. So too, we become fully integrated into God's family when we become a Christian, as Paul told the Galatians. And in Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29, it reads, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. This goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham. And you are heirs according to that promise. Also in Romans 8, verses 13 to 17. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Here Paul states, through the Holy Spirit, God's call. And through the Holy Spirit, when we answer that call, we can reach out and call God Abba, Father. And when that word Abba is used, it's a very intimate and personal relationship with God our Father. Along with adoption comes a new name. And in biblical times, a person's name was more than just a way of getting their attention instead of saying, hey, you. A lot of times, a person's name had meaning. My last name, Melnik, in Ukrainian means Miller, someone who processes grain into flour. In biblical times, Abram, meaning exalted father, was changed by God to Abraham, meaning father of many. And how true is that? At the time, Abraham must have been thinking, are you a little, a little bit off today, God? How can I be a father of many when I'm an old man and I don't even have a wife that can bear me a child anymore? But God brought that to fruition to Abraham. Christ renamed Simon to Peter, which means the rock. These days, if God was to rename me, he would probably call me Jimmy Sorbach. Now, if I could rename myself, let me tell you, 
I would call myself Receiver General and move to Sudbury because I've written enough checks to that guy over the years. I want some of that money back. There's a lot of examples in the Bible of people getting their names changed. Here's an interesting one. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, a name that has been watered down over the years, especially in North American culture. But it's a name that you can claim for your own if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. Many people today make the claim. They call themselves Christians, but it's a name only. You don't see the proof of them being Christian. You don't see the Christian love. Oftentimes, it's just something they put down on the census form. What's your religion? I'm a Christian. But there's no fruit. Which leads to the fourth point of my message today. The toughest point. What differentiates citizenship in heaven with citizenship on earth? As I thought about this question, what's the difference between heirs of God and heirs of the world? I kept coming back to the same answer at least which is very prevalent in North America. In North America, one of the most prevalent differences between a child of heaven and a child of the earth is our attitude towards sex. So now that I have your attention, and it's amazing how one little three little word can wake up anybody who is starting to nod off at this point. As I prepared this morning, I kept asking myself, do I really want to go down this road? But I kept coming back to it, so it must be important in God's eyes. And so it should be in our own eyes. And it certainly is a divisive point between Christians and non-Christians in the world today. Some of you must be thinking, well, how is he going to handle this? And I'm sure Phil and Rod are probably thinking, I hope Jim doesn't put his foot in his mouth or else we'll be busy all afternoon fielding questions. But my intent this morning is is not to get into the murky waters of the special interest groups, including Christian special interest groups. My intent is to look at what I believe the Bible says is pleasing in God's eyes regarding sex, how that differs from the world's views, at least in North America, and how, and this is perhaps the most important, how we reconcile ourselves as Christians living in a world with those differences. If we can do that, then we should have no problem dealing with all the other issues as foreigners in this world. Well, let's first look at what the Bible has to say about the matter. Genesis 2, verse 24, right at the beginning of the Bible. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Jesus reiterated that in Mark 10, verses 6 to 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. The Bible states that sex is between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage. In my opinion, if you're looking to follow God's leading, then that's it. End of story. People break that. People are sorry for that. And there's ways to um, overcome that. But that is the confines of sex within God's eyes. God created sex. It's not a bad thing. It's not a dirty word. And if you read Song of Songs, you'll understand the close relationship that God intended for for, uh, two people to have. So how do we as Christians deal with this? Since we're actually caught in the middle between God and the world. And here we are, right in the middle of it all. 
Well, one of the big mistakes that we make as Christians is to take on a holier-than-thou attitude. We have to always remember that we are sinners. We're no better than anyone else in that sense. We also make the mistake of believing it's our job to change the world, and the world owes us our rights. The world has taken the attitude that it's all about my individual rights, and you owe me those rights. And if you disagree with me, then you are intolerant. Well, you know what? Christ doesn't teach us to be tolerant. God doesn't tell us to be tolerant. The Bible doesn't instruct us on how to be tolerant. But what God does tell us to do is to love. Christ taught us how to love by his actions. The Bible teaches us how to love, not just those that love us back, but those who hate us, those who have differing views and opinions in us. That's a whole different standard than the world. See, it's easy to be tolerant. Being tolerant or tolerating somebody is just, don't bother me and I won't bother you. But when God says, love somebody as you love yourself, that's a whole different line of, of thinking. I've heard people from outside of North America comment on how here in North America we're obsessed with sex. And there's a lot of evidence of that. It's in the media. It's in advertising. It's in entertainment. I've even heard newscasters talk about sexing up a report so that it's more appealing to the audience. The world has slowly taken the attitude that anything and everything is fair game when it comes to sex. I heard a report on the radio how there was a psychiatrist trying to, to do a survey, a project, on looking at the effects of teenage boys and pornography. This psychiatrist stated that he had an extremely difficult time creating a control group of teenage boys who have never been exposed to pornography. It's out there not only on the internet, it's in there in advertising, it's something you can't escape. And he had a difficult time finding even just a few kids who have never been exposed intentionally or unintentionally to it. And that's perhaps our challenge as parents today, is to protect our kids. Well, listen to what Peter has to say about God's elect living as strangers in the world. This is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-4. to Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Listen to this. They think it's strange that you do not plunge in with them into their same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you because you're not willing to be one of them. As citizens of heaven, we have to realize this world is not our own. We're just passing through. If the world is rejecting God, then it should come as no surprise that it's also rejecting what's right in God's eyes. I sometimes hear people lament on how Canada was founded on Christian principles and how the, the country should not sway from them because of its history. Well, it saddens me to watch this happen. I know I have no right to expect someone who's not a Christian to have the same desires as I do. I believe that we as Christians are failing in how we handle this reality. And instead of showing God's love, 
to those around us and showing them in a way that they see it as appealing and something that they too want to be a part of. Oftentimes, all we do is point out what's wrong. All we do is criticize. All we do is condemn. We've done a poor job of, living, live, of loving the saver. That's, let me say that again. We've done a poor job of loving the sinner while hating the sin. That's not always the case, but it happens a lot. Think of it this way. If an ambassador comes to Canada from another country and he starts preaching and demanding that Canada follow his country's rules and regulations and traditions and customs, that ambassador would be politely shown the door and asked not to slam it on the way out. However, if that ambassador sees a country with a problem and he comes to them, and in a loving way he shows them, look, here's your problem. We've gone through this ourselves. Here's the solution that we found. It works. You want to hear it? That country is going to be more in tuned to listening and hopefully even accepting that solution. Well, we are ambassadors for Christ living in this world. It's not our responsibility to change the world. Our job is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in tangible ways in God's love for a lost world. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of people. So hopefully those people will come to a life-saving change and accepting Christ into their lives. We often try and do both jobs. And believe me, we are not equipped to do the job of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes get impatient and try and nudge them out of the way because we want to see results now and we think we can do a better job. But the reality is, the world may not change in our lifetime. That friend or relative you've been witnessing to may not change in your lifetime. They may not change at all, as sad as that is. But you cannot change that person or the world. We live in a world that seems to desire Christ less and less. And we read about it every Sunday and even this morning as it was up on the persecuted church. It's becoming more dangerous to identify yourself with Christ as time goes on. Christ warned us that the world hates him, so don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated him first. But when I put eternity into the picture, I can think of no better person to identify myself with than with Jesus Christ, who promised if you believe in me and obey my commands, you shall become heirs of God and be adopted into God's family and enjoy eternity in heaven. And how cool is that? Have we got a closing hymn this morning? No. I'll just close in prayer then and we can enjoy a wonderful lunch together. Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this time that we've spent together. I thank you for the time that you and I spent together in preparation for this message. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how you want us to live in this world. That you would teach us not to shy away from identifying with Christ, but we would be bold, bold, determined, and most of all, loving in how we interact with those around us. That people would see who we are, that we're different, and they might want that difference for themselves. Lord, help us as we leave these doors this morning and enter that mission field that is Timmins, Porcupine, South Porcupine, Ontario, the world, wherever, that we would always be prepared to give an account of what we believe, why we believe, and how that belief changes lives. Thank us for this morning, Lord, and bless us as we go about our activities today. In your name we pray. Amen.